This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Friends, I'm Rabbi Evan Goodman, Executive Director of Santa Barbara Hillel. And thank you. On behalf of our student president, Danielle Cohen, board chair, Rich Parisi, and Santa Barbara Hillel, we welcome you to this extraordinary conversation that we're going to have this evening between Michael Douglas and Natan Sharansky. We give special thanks to our partners who are here with us this evening, the Genesis Prize Foundation, with special thanks to Stan Polovitz, its chairman and co-founder, Hillel International, and Jewish Agency for Israel. Santa Barbara Hillel, why are we here? Because we enable students to connect with one another in a Jewish environment at their home away from home. We offer a safe, welcoming, and pluralistic presence as a vibrant center of student life in Isla Vista. Santa Barbara Hillel is a place that is proactive in standing up for our students, in building bridges, and in fostering a positive campus climate. We're uniquely positioned to reach students at this formative time in their lives by providing them with the tools they need as they create the Jewish future. We accomplish this in close partnership with UC Santa Barbara. A positive campus climate like ours takes careful attention to develop. One of the most important people in this regard is UCSB's Executive Vice Chancellor, David Marshall. Since the moment I arrived here seven years ago, I've seen how David is instrumental in fostering academic excellence along with encouraging the best in student life. It's my pleasure to welcome Executive Vice Chancellor David Marshall to bring greetings from the Chancellor and from UCSB. Let's give him a big hand. Thank you. Well, I'm really pleased to be here tonight and pleased to offer a few words of welcome on behalf of the University of California, Santa Barbara. And Chancellor Yang is out of town today, but he asked me to personally send his greetings and best wishes to our distinguished guests and to everybody here tonight. And we congratulate Michael Douglas on being awarded the Genesis Prize. On a personal note, I am especially pleased that Santa Barbara Hillel has brought this very interesting program, Jewish Journeys, a conversation with Michael Douglas and Natan Sharansky, to our campus. As a Hillel community board member, I've long admired the ways in which Santa Barbara Hillel has promoted interfaith dialogue and supported our students' commitment to civic engagement and social justice. And in addition, as some of you know, I used to be Dean of Humanities and Fine Arts, and I had the great honor to be the first Michael Douglas Dean of Humanities and Fine Arts. Michael Douglas has been a loyal and generous alumnus and friend of UC Santa Barbara for many years. In addition to endowing the deanship, he established the Michael Douglas Visiting Artist Program in the Department of Theater and Dance, from which he received his BA in 1968. He's a founding board member of the Carsey Wolf Center and the honorary chair of the Campaign for Santa Barbara. 
And you no doubt noticed that when you entered the theater tonight, you passed through the Michael Douglas lobby. So we're grateful for Michael's many contributions to the campus, but what I want to emphasize tonight, especially in the context of the program that brings us together here, is our pride that since he graduated from UCSB, Michael Douglas has been such a thoughtful, intelligent, original, and versatile creative artist, and such a dedicated humanitarian engaged in issues of global significance. His journeys in art and life continue to engage our interest and provoke important conversations. So thank you for being here tonight and welcome, and I'm pleased to turn the program back over to Rabbi Goodman. Thank you, David. And we are here for the students. We are here for all of you. And it's terrific to look out into our audience and see so many of our student leaders and students from across the campus community. Uh, One of the students that we're very proud of who graduated a number of years ago from UCSB, aside from Michael Douglas, uh, is David Siegelman. And David Siegelman will be serving as MC tonight to take us through uh, the remainder of the program. He was very active at Santa Barbara Hill, including serving as student president while he was here. So with that, we welcome to the podium David Siegelman. Thank you, Evan. It's great to be back home here in, in Santa Barbara. When, when the new Hillel building was, was being built, it was really my first time to address the, the community. And I was so excited, 19 years old, a sophomore at college, and they, it was my time in the, in, the, uh, in the program. I started walking up. About halfway through, uh, I felt a grip on my arm that... Um, was quite strong, and none other than our own Natalie Meyerson, who actually turns uh, 96 next month. And, and halfway up, she stopped me to say, we're excited to hear your remarks, but not if you're not without wearing a jacket. So I went back to my chair, I grabbed my jacket. So 15 years later, I have my jacket, and, and I promise in 15 years, uh, in the future, I'll wear a tie. Um, so, but, but really, to, uh, to Natalie and to the entire Santa Barbara community, um, particularly at Hillel, for teaching me uh, how to be a leader. Um, it's, it's something that's carried with me forever. So uh, we're really excited about the program tonight. There's nothing more powerful than hearing the stories of, of the Jewish journeys. We have two remarkable people here. But before we invite our out-of-town guests up, we want to have a couple of the locals here. Uh, so it's, it's my real pleasure to introduce two students, uh, Andrew Packer, and Michelle Moret to tell a little bit about their Jewish journeys. Good evening. If I had to guess, I would bet that the faith stories of most Jewish individuals do not begin with Sunday Bible studies, Easter egg hunts, or Christmas trees. Nor do they include Catholic school and a Jesuit education. How many Catholic households open presents Christmas morning and light Hanukkah candles just eight hours later? How common is it to attend a cousin's first communion one day and a relative's bar mitzvah just months later? For me, Santa Barbara Hillel has enabled me to reconnect with my Jewish roots. 
Birthright with Hillel provided the gateway to my Jewish connection today. Growing up in an interfaith family, my everyday experience was a melting pot of cultural and religious values. My mother is Catholic, and my father is Jewish. Although we were regularly exposed to Catholic Church, my parents were careful to never let Judaism leave the picture. Seder meals and latkes were just as common as gingerbread and prime rib. From a cultural perspective, I had no idea what to call myself, but I was comfortable with that. My upbringing has taught me that there are no easy answers, and that questioning is ultimately how we develop spirituality. It was my ability to question and find comfort with the uncomfortable that led me to hello. This past summer, I decided to do what any broke, adventure-hungry college student would do. Take a free trip to Israel. What I expected was a group of, for lack of better words, die-hard Jewish peers intent on changing my views. A conversion experience of sorts. What I found instead was a group of amazing individuals, all with different Jewish journeys, eager to ask questions. From a tour guide who doesn't keep kosher, to a bat mitzvah ceremony for a girl who doesn't believe in God, and a profound bus conversation with an Orthodox student, I realized that Judaism to me is very much about the community of people and the message of acceptance it conveys. My flight back to LAX gave me plenty of time to develop my understanding of religion in the context of someone with strong ties to multiple faiths. I was excited to come back to spend time at Hillel, but still hesitant to really jump into a community of people who may not understand my interfaith background. What I found at Santa Barbara Hillel was a continuation of my birthright experience, a celebration of culture, community, and heritage. As one might guess, Shabbat provides a sense of community and acceptance to me and many others. While attending Shabbat last quarter, I noticed that in addition to the regular attendees, new faces come and go on a weekly basis. Friends of attendees and people passing through Santa Barbara, some with no affiliation to Judaism whatsoever, are always welcome in the community and invited to participate in the meal. This is a testament not only to Santa Barbara Hillel, but to the concept of haknasa orhim, or welcoming in the strangers. Santa Barbara Hillel is a place of friendship and open expression. It allows me to continue my cultural exploration of Judaism and opens the dialogue on religion. As an interfaith student, my religious experience can best be defined through the words of author Michael Novak. The Lord God, the God of Judaism and Christianity, empowered our minds and gave us the ability to question. Santa Barbara Hillel helps to nurture my questioning and aid my spiritual journey with open arms. Through Santa Barbara Hillel, I have reconnected with my Jewish roots, and that is something I am incredibly grateful for. Thank you. Good evening. It's an honor to be speaking to you all tonight. For as long as I can remember, I have held a special love for Israel, one that was fostered by my mother and father. It is difficult to describe this love because it is so overwhelming. This love encompasses connection to a people and the Hebrew language, attachment to a history and land, and investment in a struggle that has lasted for thousands of years. I am a senior at UC Santa Barbara studying political science and psychology, and I am passionate about both my university and Israel advocacy. My connection to Israel stems from my Jewish identity, and over the past four years, Santa Barbara Hillel has been here to help me grow Jewishly. My experience with Israel has been largely positive, yet at times it has been more of a challenge. Although I am getting ready to graduate, I remember my first divestment meeting with great clarity. 
On campuses across the nation, including ours, student senators are increasingly being confronted with a resolution to divest university funds from companies that conduct business in Israel. The call for divestment is linked to the larger international boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, which demonizes, delegitimizes, and places a double standard on Israel through its demands. What I realized at that first divestment meeting would dictate my actions for the remainder of my college career. First, I resolved that believing wholeheartedly in a Jewish state comes with the responsibility of being equipped to protect this tiny state from false accusations and skewed rhetoric thrown from all directions. Second, I resolved that Israel's accomplishments and beauties must be highlighted to the campus community. Third, I determined the necessity of having students on Senate who understand the divisive and damaging effects of divestment. Senators who see the hostility directed at Jewish and pro-Israel students when divestment is brought up, and senators who actively work to combat this. This particular realization would later serve as an inspiration for me to run for Senate during my sophomore year. Ultimately, I served as a student senator because I wanted to enact positive change and have the privilege of amplifying student voices. And when I look back on my Senate career, what stands out for me is the success of Jewish and the pro-Israel community in defeating divestment. Santa Barbara Hillel played a large role in this achievement by providing our community with a space to come together and by maintaining communication with a network of organizations that offered additional support and education. Yet this was no surprise, because my final realization as a freshman was that Hillel's staff, who stood with us during that meeting, are our reinforcement and are always ready to back us up. During my time at this university, I have found that Hillel is not only a physical building, but an intricate community that has been a home and even a fortress. This past summer, I had the incredible opportunity of traveling with Hillel students from UCSB to Israel on birthright. On our first day in Jerusalem, we drove to Mount Scopus to look over this holy city. As I took in the view, I could barely contain my joy that behind me stood the Hebrew University of Jerusalem campus, which would soon be my university for the fall 2015 quarter. The same love for Israel that has driven me since I was young drove me to study in Jerusalem through the UC Education Abroad program. It was through living in Jerusalem for four months that I truly learned what it means to be Israeli, to be fiercely aggressive but loving at the core, to live through knife attacks, to look out for one another as though everyone is family, to remember history while also looking towards the future, and to love life beyond measure. Living in Jerusalem allowed me to experience the complexities of the Israeli society and only served to strengthen my pride for the Jewish state and intensify my belief that we must continue to advocate for it. Now that I have returned, I am excited to serve as a vice president on the Hillel Student Board, encourage others to study abroad in Israel, and help shape campus dialogue in a manner that ensures that students who represent undergraduates at senators are furthering a mission on campus that is positive, productive, and welcoming in nature to Jewish students and all students. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew and Michelle. Uh, it's not easy to share your personal journey and your personal story. 
And that is the theme for tonight. Uh, the amazing thing about Hillel is that these stories are happening all over the country and all over the world. We're in, a real treat, we're in for a real treat tonight, as we're going to hear two more amazing Jewish journeys. They're different in many ways, but circle back to one place tonight here in Santa Barbara. Last June, Michael Douglas was in Israel for, with his family to receive the Genesis Prize. He's actually the second Michael to win the prize, which has been dubbed by Time magazine as the Jewish Nobel Prize. Michael Douglas and Michael Bloomberg are the first two recipients of the $1 million award, which they've both generously donated back to the community. For Michael Douglas, his $1 million has been matched by an anonymous donor, and again, through more donors, to now total roughly $3.5 million, which will have a major impact on his work in creating avenues of engagement for intermarried families and their children. I actually have never met Michael Douglas before the Genesis Prize, but as a student here in Santa Barbara, I had the incredible honor of a Friday night service at Santa Barbara Hillel, where Kirk Douglas, his father, gave the Devar Torah. It was amazing. It was the most inspirational cross-section I've ever had of pride and courage delivered to a group of students. Joining Michael on stage is a renowned human rights activist, former Soviet refusenik, chairman of the Jewish Agency for Israel, and chairman of the Genesis Prize Selection Committee, Natan Sharansky. When Natan and Michael met in Israel, they realized they had a diverse background, but they also had a lot in common, namely their desire to impact and work with college students. For me, I got to know Natan through his book, The Case for Democracy. When I started my first job in the Jewish community, my boss at that time, Morris Squire, had me read Natan's book to understand what it is to be a Jewish, to be Jewish in the wider world. Here they are to tell their stories and answer your questions following their conversation. Please join me in welcoming Natan Sharansky and Michael Douglas. I'm going to forego a formal introduction based on your applause. You know these gentlemen, and they're here to tell, here to tell you about themselves in their own words. David, thank you, Rabbi. What an introduction. Um, thank you so much for being here. And Michelle, Andrew, the words were uh, fantastic to hear uh, those wonderful words. Um, this is our last night together, Natan and I. I feel like I'm going to lose my brother uh, for a, a little while. Thank, thank you all for being here. So many people to thank. The Hillel organization, uh, Hillel has done just an amazing job of become aware of what they've done, just the time I've spent. It's, it's fantastic. And the town, the Jewish agency, working closely together, um, it's, it's, been, it's been a real education for me, and I'm really appreciative of it. And the Genesis group, uh, the Genesis Foundation, and having this prize uh, has given me a, a new education that I never anticipated at this point uh, in my life. So thank you, and to be here in Santa Barbara, at UCSB, 48 years later. <laughs> I don't know about that. It was really a treat. And thank you, Natan, and everybody else for making this uh, 
possibility. As you know, we were at Brown uh, Stanford last night, and it's a treat to uh, to be here to today to talk about our respective uh, our respective journeys. Um, the town, I, th- I think, really. I'm curious. You know, you're you're from Donetsk, not Odessa. Now you're from Donetsk. My and parents are from Odessa. Huh? My parents are from Odessa. Oh, they are from Odessa. Yeah. So it's it's, so it's, it's not a standing yeah. joke. It's yeah. it's it's for, it's for sure. Um, and um, there's a tremendous amount of anti-Semitism uh, when you were growing up. And I thought maybe people would like to know a little bit about your background of your faith from. Ukraine, and when you mentioned the other night, which I found interesting, that you found more faith when you were in prison those years, um, and that was a key strategic point. And maybe you could just tell a little bit of your okay. background. Okay, I, uh, it's difficult when we are already speaking for three evenings. It seems like you are repeating yourself. <laughs> uh, but I'll try to be short and uh, straight to the point. Um, uh, Donetsk, city of Donetsk, which today everybody knows because that is the center of the war between Ukraine and Russia. Uh, there were probably in those days half a million people, probably 10% of them uh, Jewish. Uh, nobody knows exactly. Uh, I grew knowing zero about my Jewishness because I didn't know the words like Purim or Pesach or Bar Mitzvah or Brit Milah. Uh, not only no Bar Mitzvah, but no word like this. Nothing. But we knew very well that we are Jewish because it is written in the idea of your parents. And uh, all the conversations at home are about anti-Semitism, discrimination, and how difficult it will be to get to this institute and to have this job. So... Uh, the only Jewishness which was in our life was anti-Semitism. And uh, so it was very bad. It was like to be born with some very bad disease and you have to learn how to cope with this. What kind of medicine? And the medicine was very clear. Parents are telling to you that because you're Jewish, everywhere, in school, in university, in kindergarten, you must be number one in physics, or in mathematics, or in chess, or in music, or in dance, whatever, uh, it doesn't matter. You must be the best in your profession. That is the way how uh, we Jews survive. Uh, uh, to think maybe you should fight for, against this injustice, you're not fighting against anything. You're only trying to adjust yourself. There are no values except the value of survival. And uh, when it changed in 1967, Israel entered our lives very powerfully because uh, the victory of Israel over allies of Soviet Union was a huge humiliation for Soviet Union. After all, it was the most powerful dictatorship in the world. They gave a lot of money, a lot of weapons, a lot of their soldiers were there, and then such a humiliation. There is a lot of talk about Israel, and suddenly you find out, you discover that all the people around you, your friends and your enemies, they all connect you to, to Israeli army, as if it is uh, your army. Uh, and you want to understand why the world connects you, and that's when uh, we start reading the underground from the books which were brought by American tourists about ourselves, and suddenly you discover that there is such a great history, 
which is not history of Soviet communist revolution, not history of all these repressions of Lenin and Stalin, but that's history which begins from exodus from Egypt and goes through thousand years straight to the exodus of Leon Uris. There was such a great book, which if you read today, you say, oh, Bobo Mises. Yeah. But for us to realize suddenly that people almost of our age can be such an active part of this unique history, you want to be part of it. And then in addition, you discover that all these Jewish tourists who are coming from Australia, from Miami, from London, from everywhere, they're all from Odessa. They say, they, oh, your father is Odessa. And my father, or mother, or grandmother, somebody is from Odessa. So they say, maybe we are family, let's count. So you find out they are all one small family from one shtetl. They all, and they, and you find what a great people it is. They all want to help you. And so you find that, discover that there is a state which is ready to send airplanes to the end of the world uh, to set you free. Later, when they came to arrest me, the picture of Yoni Netanyahu was on the wall. And not because of Bibi. Bibi then didn't exist in our lives. But because that was the soldier who led the operation to release uh, hostages, Jewish hostages in Entebbe. And it was clear. Then, for many years in prison, prison, you hear sound of the airplane, and you immediately think about Entebbe. And you know the day will come, and Israel will send airplanes. That was this powerful feeling of discovery of your identity, history, people, and Israel. And then you have enough strength. Then suddenly there are values in your life. You not only how to survive physically, but in fact how to be part of something much bigger than your physical survival. And that's when you have enough strength to start fighting for your rights and for your desire not to be part of that society. And then for the rights of the other Jews, and then for the rights of everybody. And that's how he became spokesman of two movements, Jewish movement and human rights movement in the Soviet Union. And that's how my journey continued. Now, what about you? <laughs> okay. Mine is rather short. Um, well, it started a long time ago, because I guess it started with my father's family in, in Belarus. Uh, it was 1914, Russian Revolution. That's the Cossacks. Yeah. The Cossacks were coming. They were starting to round up the Jews and the pogroms. And uh, my, my grandfather said, maybe I should get out of here. And they came to this country in 1916. My father is Sir Danielovich, known as Kirk. He was 99 right now as we speak and still doing strong. Thank you very much. And he was born here with his, with his six sisters. They were in an Orthodox family at that time in upper state New York. And very soon, though, as he entered school and everything else, he began to assimilate. And he went away to college and um, kind of forgot about his, his Judaism. I think probably in part because he was an actor and what we would call a white Russian. He was not perceived as being Jewish at first. And as an actor, you look to try to play the widest amount of roles that you can. And so he assimilated. He met my mother, uh, Diana. My story is a little bit like Andrew's. My mother, uh, Diana, who's a British Bermudian Church of England. And they met in drama school. They came together. 
and I don't think religion was the first thing on their minds. Um, and they came together, married, and I had my brother and I, and we grew up in a family that religion was not part of it. My first memories, I think, was going to a cousin, uh, my mother's, my brother, my father's sister's son, my cousin, to a bar mitzvah when they were 13, and maybe it was the opening, the first night, and we could fill the fish, and I got appendicitis. <laughs> and I had my appendix taken out. My family was not happy about that because Kirk was the star of the evening, and he was at the hospital with me. So I didn't have good memories about my first Jewish experience. <laughs> then later on, when I was in high school, I kind of remember that we had an intramural um, volleyball team together that was called the Non-Denoms. And we had a, our T-shirts had a Star of David with a cross in the middle. And I guess it was kids like me that came from mixed, uh, mixed families. And so I continued through my life. And I realized, though, that Kirk, and if you notice a lot of his performances and the kind of intensity that he had, deeply had a real rage because as a, as a person who was not perceived as being Jewish, he heard a tremendous amount of anti-Semitism throughout his life. And I think that's part of the anger uh, that came from, from that. But I've continued along, um, other than my closest spiritual experience was right here in Santa Barbara as a um, 1963 to 65, as a good hippie sitting right here in school, working with the Student Meditation Society, the Maharishi Mahesh Yoga, uh, doing some slight medical research on uh, <laughs> just early assistance for early glaucoma. We were just working on everything, things like that. Um, and, uh, but other than that, I uh, remember things went along fine, and I married my wife, Catherine, and had... Two, two kids, and lo and behold, uh, my father, I should preface this by, my, my father, when he turned 70, just about the same age as I did, had a horrendous helicopter accident. Uh, sir, he survived, and other people in an airplane crash died, and he basically asked himself, why am I alive and they are dead? And he began to get back to his roots and studying the Talmud with Rabbi Volpe, who you, you met last week, and, and it, it, it changed his life. And I remember, you know, that's 20, 29 years ago, and I remember how much he's changed, how much more kinder and gentler and uh, spiritual that he has been in that period of time. It was a tremendous influence. And then my son, Dylan, uh, going to school here back east four or five years ago, uh, having different friends going to their houses for the weekends, and a couple of the friends were Jewish. They would celebrate Shabbat. He would light the candles. They would go to Hebrew school the next day. He would hang out. And he came back about eight or nine months later, and he said, I want to be a Jew. I said, well, I want a bar mitzvah. And I said, well, what is it? He said, Dad, I don't know. When they light the candle and they talk, there's something I feel of community. Um, there's something in my heart, my soul feels. I said, Dylan, this is wonderful. Little thinking, he just heard about the party, you know, how much <laughs> gifts he was going to get and all of that. But no, he, he, he really felt strongly about it. And so he studied voraciously, voraciously. He brought 
the values that he was studying, um, things that I was aware that I was in some part felt a need to do, Tikkun Ulam and others. And my wife, who's Welsh, really supported it. And um, he went on this, this journey and had a bar mitzvah. We went to Israel and celebrated it. Went to the wall. A few pictures were taken. Made the, made the Israeli press. Next thing I know, the Genesis group contacts me and presents this incredible prize, this opportunity, uh, which I was truly touched because I felt I was part of the tribe. And I never knew that it meant so much to me to be the part of this group. As secular as I am, um, just the part of that community and the values that they represented meant a tremendous amount to me. And I'm so very, very grateful because Natan, among all the other things he does with the Jewish agency and in the Israeli government, he also is involved with the Genesis Group and he was part of chairman of the select committee and largely responsible for choosing me. I've always wondered you know, how and why He's, he shared this with me and, and um, I, I feel honored and I feel really honored to be part of this, uh, this whole trip with you. And thank you. You've enlightened my life and, and uh, brought, uh, brought uh, a lot of wisdom to it. So that part is, is, is great. Um, a few questions that I sort of wanted really to ask you because soon after, soon after this nice uh, bar mitzvah and the trip to Israel, we went to another town in Europe um, and my kids were down in the swimming pool having a swim and we were upstairs, Catherine and I were upstairs and my son came up in tears, you know, and never, he hardly ever cries, just completely in tears and Somebody had, had, had really raged at him when he was in the pool about doing something, and I thought maybe he'd acted out. And he was sitting there, still all wet and crying, and, and I'm looking at him, and then all I could see was his Star of David that his Welsh grandfather had given him for his bar mitzvah, shining in the light. And I said, I wonder, I wonder. And I went down to the pool, and um, saw the pool man there at the hotel. And I said, was my son? He said, no, Mr. Douglas, your son was fine. He was a gentleman. And he kind of looked away at me and I said, I said and he said, I, I don't know what to say to you. I'm, they're, they're, Mr. Douglas, they're regular guests here. And he said, who was it? I went over to a couple. And they were sitting there. And the gentleman was sunning himself. The, the wife was... Michael Douglas had a little, had a little, little bit of freaked out. And this gentleman, and, and I said, excuse me, did my son do something, you know, that... Um, and he went on about rules and this and that, and there's to be rules, and, and this organizes too many people in the world. And going in, he, he did have a, a German accent, and he spoke, and I said, I'm from Switzerland. I said, you're from Switzerland. I said, are you, are you from Zurich? And he said, I know where you're going. Huh? I know where you're going. And I said, whoa, well, how would you know where I'm going? And I came back to my son. I said, I, I, Dylan, I think you just had your first taste of anti-Semitism. So I guess my question to you, and this is pretty quick, my, my, my question to you, Natan, is twofold. Number one, what is 
the need and the interest and desire for reaching out to interfaith uh, couples and marriages and finding out people drifting away from the orthodox area of this religion. And then the other part is um, anti-Semitism. And how has it changed? I mean, we talked about the fact that France, there's a dramatic increase of Jews in France that are going back to Israel uh, this year, the Ukraine, Russia. Uh, we have this BDS movement uh, here, which is an attack really on the state of Israel. And the, I don't know if, it, if there are separate questions or the if efforts that I see making for inclusion and interfaith, bringing people more together, and the other part of that is the question of anti-Semitism today. Well, considerably two huge questions. Let's again try to uh, take your time. Yeah, okay. Take your time. <laughs> uh, first, about uh, inclusion, and I I don't think I'm breaking with orthodoxy. I uh, I really don't. I think. Uh, your your story is a very important reminder. And that was one of the reasons why um, we thought about you as a candidate. It's a reminder that the person who devoted his or her life to to promote universal values, and you did it excellently as an actor, as an artist, uh, and who was disconnected, disconnected himself, or was disconnected from the life of Jewish community. In fact, uh, almost for two generations, went very far from this. And then he, because of antisemitism, or because of his son, because of other reasons, rediscovers, is reminded about his identity, and wants to connect it with the world of universal value that he was fighting it and wants to, to see where it is connected and how it is connected and asks questions and looks for answers. I think Jewish community has to do everything to welcome, to be friendly, to be interested, uh, to enrich uh, your, themselves, ourselves, with also your story. And, and uh, look, the question, uh, the debates between different communities of ours, who is a Jew, whether you'll take this definition, this definition, different definition, will always exist. And I, the one who already, 30 years that I'm in Israel, 30 years I'm involved in these debates, who is a Jew and how to bring different uh, groups uh, together. But when it comes to the journey, the journey which we are doing together, Everybody who wants to join this journey of thousands of years should feel that he's mostly welcomed and wanted. That's about uh, your first question. And uh, uh, by the way, the struggle for Soviet Jewry, which started as a struggle of a small group of Jews in the Soviet Union who suddenly discovered their identity and were very empowered by this. We could never survive even one day if we were not joined by hundreds of thousands of American Jews who rediscovered their identity through the struggle, their role in the history. And we were marching together and uh, 
when I was arrested, all these, not all, all those American Jews with whom I ever met or was on telephone, there were hundreds and hundreds of thousands of them. They were all on my list of accomplices. For, KG, for KGB, they were all enemies. And there was no way to find out who of them is reformed, a conservative, who is secular, whose mother is Jewish and whose father is Jewish. They, they were all part of this journey. and They wanted to be part of the journey. So for me, it is very important that we as a Jewish community always will be open, welcoming uh, for, for those who are interested to be part of the journey. Now, as to anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism uh, uh, and anti-Israelism, which, uh, new anti-Semitism, which exists today in Europe, which exists today in many campuses, which is the oldest hatred in the history of mankind. It's the same oldest hatred, which doesn't have any logical explanation. There were so many hundreds of articles and books and studies which try to give to this logical explanation, and then it's almost uh, impossible to do. Uh, and it goes very deep to the uh, values of our civilization, to the struggle against uh, these values. Today, this, uh, and uh, it seemed after the Holocaust that the world is so shocked, uh, uh, the understanding how dangerous this anti-Semitism is for uh, for the for the humanity is so obvious that it, we finished with this. And of course, I grew in Ukraine. There was a lot of anti-Semitism because that was part of the world which had the Holocaust but didn't have any lessons from this Holocaust. Now what we find out that uh, Western Europe, this year we have the highest, highest ever immigration from the Western Europe, 10,000 people, there was never such a figure. Yeah, ever. Uh, ever, from 1948, from the immigration of the State of Israel. Uh, t- t- uh, from France, it moved from 1,800 new immigrants two years ago to 8,000 this year, and potential is dozens and dozens of thousands, those who are opening their, start their process with us of Aliyah. Our estimation is that approximately half of French Jews, it's 600,000 French Jews, half of them already decided that their children will not live in France. And, uh, and that is direct result of the old anti-Semitism, which is going mainly from a conservative, right, uh, relig- uh, Christian community, joins with the very powerful new anti-Semitism, which comes mainly from liberal Europe, and which all is expressed in the extreme forms of demonizing of Israel. And on the top of all this, huge community which is coming from Middle East, and many of whom don't share any values of Western civilization, and uh, hatred to Jews and hatred to Israel is felt well, sometimes it turns into terror. So all this t- suddenly turns Europe in an extremely uncomfortable uh, place to be. Uh, and uh, in our work, it is very important all the time to, to show the deep connection between classical old anti-Semitism, which was all based on demonization, delegitimization, double standard, 
towards Jews and new anti-Semitism, which is all based on demonization, legitimization, and double standard towards the state of Israel. Where is the, um, where is the support for BDS coming from? It seems pretty organized. Uh, it seems well-financed. Yeah, well, uh, first of all, uh, uh, though, of course, BDS movement and uh, many activists of BDS movement and sometimes even naively believe that uh, the aim is protection of human rights. If you look, even on the internet site, and look, listen to the leaders, what is the real aim of BDS movement? The real aim is destruction of the state of Israel, which, of course, is masked by the demand stop immediately occupation. Because occupation is the biggest violation of human rights. Uh, how we can stop? Uh, how we can stop the occupation without committing suicide? It's not our business. But if you look, they don't even mask the leaders. That the real aim is that there will be no Jewish state. That Jews will be minority in, the, in another Arab state. Second, if you look at the history from where it started. It started from the Centers for Middle East Studies like 15 years ago, which started appearing in different campuses, which were all financed by uh, Arab countries. Uh, then, with the time, uh, yes, they, uh, this movement was joined by some uh, uh, liberal forces who didn't even realize that uh, uh, how they are used uh, with, uh, within a very organized, concentrated effort of uh, financing coming from, uh, from the worst enemies of Israel on one hand and from some uh, uh, European countries who uh, uh, fed with this... Uh, New, uh, newly emerging uh, or the old anti-Semitism turning into uh, hatred uh, towards Israel. And uh, uh, when I, I was probably on more than 100 campuses and I remember how it started as the Westmont movement, as movement against uh, uh, occupation during the Second Intifada. And step by step it turned into boycotts academical boycott, professional boycott, boycott of doctors. And it was always based on extremely hypocritical double standard. For example, boycott of Israeli universities because they're discriminating uh, Arab population. In the Israeli universities, there are more Arabs studying in uh, Israeli universities than in any Arab country. It's uh, simply, there is nothing even to compare about these opportunities. Or uh, just recently, this boycott uh, of uh, 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 gay and lesbian society against Israel because Israel violates human rights of our brothers. We are living in the area, in the region, where the only way for gays to survive is to ask for political asylum in Israel. Gays in Gaza uh, are simply thrown from the roofs without any trial. I, I was traveling on, uh, on the university once 
with one Palestinian gay who agreed to, uh, to be for, for some months, and then he was afraid he also decided to go underground, but who agreed to speak how when in Ramallah they found out that he's gay, they gave him a choice. Or you'll become a suicide bomber, or you'll be killed immediately. And see, he agreed to become a suicide bomber, and he escaped to Israel and asked for political asylum. So, well, uh, and of course Israel is, well, uh, is the only country there where you have these gay, gay parades and where uh, our army never had any restrictions. Like your army always had a problem now, has less problems. In Israel, I mean, it was, this question never even, uh, right, I'm not now promoting gays uh, uh, parades. Right. I simply want to say that it's such a highest level of hypocrisy here on the universities. Uh, here, uh, from the people who have to know better than anybody else that simply uh, all their brothers will be killed if they will not escape to Israel the, uh, from, from, the, from Syria, from Lebanon, from, uh, uh, from Gaza and so on. And nevertheless, it becomes also part of the boycott movement. So there is a lot of hypocrisy. A lot of, it's not even double standard. It's some, some, uh, some of the highest level of hypocrisy. It's basically is financed by the forces who want to destroy Israel. And where we really uh, made a big mistake, I believe, that we permitted to use the banner of human rights against us, on, uh, while the only country in that part of the world which believes in human rights, which protects human rights, which is concerned about human rights, is the state of Israel. Um, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a real positive note, I don't know if anybody saw <clears throat> this week, um, really in large part due to Natan and the work of the Jewish agency um, with the Western Wall, and opening it up for uh, <clears throat> um, I mean, me raise a hand. How, um, how many people have been to Israel? <laughs> I'm always amazed. You got a lot of lot of tourists. Uh, you got a lot, of, a, a lot of visitors. Well, I guess you know. I mean, again, when you're over there and you and you you see the the wall and you understand what you've accomplished and. I'm blown by the negotiations that's been going on. You've mentioned this is three and a half, almost four years of talking, working with different uh, different organizations um, to to allow with the women of the wall and the mix to be able to be there with the Orthodox. And maybe you just want to talk a little bit uh, about that whole process. Well, yes, it so happened that in the middle of our tour, just this Sunday, there was a historical meeting of the government. Why it was historical? Because I think it was the first meeting of the government ever when somebody participated in this meeting through Skype. And that was me. I, I was in Pasadena, but because the issue which, for which I was, on the request of Prime Minister, was leading negotiations for three years, so like to make the last push, I made it through Skype, speaking uh, to the government meeting. And what I was saying, I was saying that uh, whether some Israelis understand it or don't understand, but 
uh, big part, maybe majority of American Jews uh, see themselves as part of reformed conservative Jewry. And in these days when our mutual dependence is so big of American Jewry on Israel for their strengthening their own identity, on Israel which is under permanent attacks of our enemies and of course our first allies are uh, uh, Jews of the world. And it's odd to think that we expect and correctly so from these Jews to fight every day against the legitimization of the state of Israel and that at the same time we are not ready to give them full legitimacy. It's absurd. And uh, uh, it started more than three years ago when Prime Minister called me and said, Natal, I cannot see these pictures anymore. I can't accept that the court of the, the wall became something which divides our people instead of uniting it. So because Jewish agency is a unique institution where in our round table, board of governors, are sitting representatives of the government and opposition and Jewish federations and Orthodox Jewry and Reform Jewry and Conservative Jewry, like the only table like this in the Jewish world where they all sit together. So he asked me, check with different sides if there is any way to bring them to negotiate about it. And then uh, uh, it took a few months to, to bring to this negotiation table and it took three years uh, to agree. And it, it seems that it's such a simple thing. After all, there is one wall for one people. Why, should, why shouldn't... Uh, we all agree about it. But the uniqueness of the wall is that it's at the same time number one religious symbol in our history. Three thousand years ago, uh, God said, here you will be in contact with me. And uh, that's the uh, place where, where Jews were coming for these three thousand years to talk to God. And at the same time, it's number one national symbol. There is no more central symbol which uh, of uh, Jew, Jewish state of ancient times, uh, 1967, Jewish state of modern times. It's number one national symbol and number one religious symbol. And for the rabbi of the uh, wall, that is... His mission in this world is to keep the most ancient synagogue, Orthodox synagogue, in the world uh, as it is. For every community in the world, it is like uh, the sign of recognition that they are part of Jewish people, the fact that they can come there and to pray in the way in which they are doing it uh, in their own community. So on one hand, the wall has to connect thousands of years of our history and our faith. And on the other hand, it has to connect every Jewish community. And from here comes the conflict. And I have to say that, in fact, uh, there were many sides involved in the negotiations. From my point of view, the heroes of this story is all, is at the same time the rabbi of the wall and the women of the wall. Why? Because the leader of the women of the wall had to make concessions which brought to the 
that half of her movement saw that she betrayed this movement because they were against concessions. And the rabbi of the wall had to make concessions which brought thousands and thousands of Pashkvilim. You know what Pashkvilim is? It's uh, the condemnations on his street uh, of him. So it was very difficult to make concessions. How, nevertheless, we brought them to do it? I believe that as a result of these years of negotiations, the sides started looking broader on their own people. And they realized that if the other side will be defeated, the wall will stop being symbol for, for half of Jewish people. And you want to control the wall? You want to control it as something which represents all the Jewish people? In the end, you will win, and you will control the wall with which half of Jewish people dissociate themselves. And so then we create a situation in which both sides understood that however painful are these compromises, the unity of Jewish people is much more important. And that may be the, the biggest achievement of this. I want to open um, the evening up for, for people who have questions. So I'll just ask one more, so if you think about it, and then we'll prepare for some uh, questions. This has been uh, you know, a, rough, a rough year in terms of the tragedy in France, uh, San Bernardino, we were talking, uh, an Israeli border guard was murdered uh, yesterday. Today? Today. 19-year-old girl. 19-year-old girl t- um, today. Um, what influence does Daesh, ISIS, do you feel have in terms of um, the issues dealing specifically with Israel? Well, first of all, uh, Daesh or ISIS and uh, all these uh, militant fundamentalist organizations, but which they all start from uh, from fundamentalist ideology of Wahhabism. Uh, they create the whole new situation in the Arab world. The result we see here how extremism becomes more and more popular how Muslims in, who were born in France or in England or in Belgium, who were born, who went to the European schools and now are uh, joining ISIS. So if that is the influence on some Muslims in Europe, you can imagine what is their influence on the Arabs in the Middle East itself. So no, no doubt that it has an influence. But at the same time, the day-to-day propaganda of Palestinian authority, authority with which we are supposed to be partners and to and then to build uh, peace. M- many of these terrorists who uh, know more than 30 Israeli citizens were stabbed to death in the last few months and more than 300 were heavily injured. And Palestinians who are doing it uh, many of them very young. They uh, they say that it, uh, they were inspired by broadcastings of Palestinian TV, and uh, many of them, of course, are inspired by the slogans of vices and by these uh, videos of vices, which uh, are shocking for 
many of us, but which are like uh, uh, appealing to the most primitive, uh, dangerous uh, feelings of those who want to glorify death. And that's very dangerous. Yeah. David, are you going to take us for questions? Or, or? Um, are there any questions from... Hi, um, my name is Danielle Cohen. I'm a third-year film and media and sociology oh. major and currently the student board president of Santa Barbara Hillel. Uh, my question is for Mr. Sharonsky. First of all, I'd like to say thank you for sharing and for um, all of your hard work regarding the new compromise at the wall. I was wondering what challenges and opportunities you see going forward with religious pluralism in Israel? Oh, I thought if you are... Uh, your specialty is film, so you, you can ask uh, Michael. Unique opportunity, but but the Israeli film market is still a small market. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, look, uh, first of all, it's a very complicated problem. I will not go now into the history, but it so happened that. Uh, Israel is definitely founding fathers of our state. Uh, didn't face this situation when, uh, as Ben Gurion was saying, the synagogue to which I don't go is Orthodox. He didn't go any other thing. Uh, or you go, or you don't go. Or you Orthodox, or you secular. And there was no confrontation between this point of view and and uh, this uh, pluralism of uh, uh, Jewish world in those years. Uh, with the time it developed in bigger and bigger problem uh, I believe that if you will succeed with this compromise it's a great base for uh, uh, addressing many other problems of recognition of conversion of uh, Shabbat for everybody and many other things which are in the middle because the moment you accept the principle that we are Jews as a religion and we are Jews as a nation. And whatever the Jewish state does, it has to keep compromise between connection with a thousand years of tradition and connection with every Jewish community in the world. The moment every side agrees that it must be met in the middle, I think we have a very good opportunity to, to go ahead. And that's why I am very encouraged by our success, though it took us a few years. But still, we'll see. Thank you. More questions. All right, we'll do one more over there, and then we'll move this way. Please stand up. Hi, I'm uh, David Segura. I'm a fourth-year student here and a sociology major, and my question is for Mr. Douglas. Uh, as a student, I'm just really curious about what it was like going to school here at UCSB, aside from the important medical research uh, that you were doing. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Also, Isla Vista was at the vibrant community that we see today of wonderful students, and uh, the Jewish presence on campus, was it big, was it small? Uh, thank you. Well, like my mother and father, I wasn't very aware of the Jewish presence in 1963. Um, although the summer, uh, the summer after that, 1964, my father did a movie called Cast a Giant Shadow, the story of Mickey Marcus, and I spent the summer in Israel. 
with my first trip to Israel, one of the most extraordinary experiences I, I ever, ever had at that particular time in terms of a, a, a country that I did not know a little bit about, but I learned a lot about in terms of how recent their, uh, their battles and their war had been. I remember filming and, and because the, the, the jets were flying overhead and because of the size of the country, before you knew it, they were flying back <laughs> again, going down to the other end. And it was always a problem because we had to wait for the sound and the frustrations. I remember being in the, um, in the res- restaurants that the film crew was staying at, not understanding why on weekends we couldn't have a hot meal. And who was this gentleman in this black cloak? his hat walking around the kitchen, you know, making sure the lock was on the uh, toaster um, and f- understanding this kind of complex mixture between, between uh, religion and politics and the, and the state. But as far as being here in Santa Barbara, it was a magical time, the most important time of my life. I grew up on the East Coast. Um, I basically came here to the university because when you look at your college advisory, it's sort of like a travel agent. You know, he's going through the, the different brochures. And I said, wait a minute, let me stop. And it said, Campus by the Sea. And I looked at it, and this is back east, and all I saw, there wasn't one building in sight. Because all this was was marine barracks. Uh-huh. You know, all marine barracks and, and one Campbell Hall was the only building that was here. The rest of it was marine barracks. And, and there was a guy walking down the beach carrying a surfboard with two girls. And I in, in, in two-piece bathing suits. You never saw a two-piece bathing suit back east in 1963. And I said, I want to go there. <laughs> and it turned out, and um, I, I, God bless Ronald Reagan, it was the height of the UC system. They attracted all these incredible professors from, from back east. It was an extraordinary system. Had a fantastic theater program at that time. And it's continued to grow uh, amazingly under the artful hand of David Marshall, uh, who's now moved up. And so it was a, it was a magical time. It was a, you know, obviously, it was exploding. We used to have, there was a tremendous number of protests going on vis- vis-a-vis the Vietnam War at that particular time. Uh, Wednesday, Wednesday sat in protests out in front of the library. Uh, so it was an, an exciting, wonderful time, and uh, I, I remember it very, very fondly. Uh, and it's nice to see, just being here now, and Natan arrived for the first time and literally got off the plane here. And it was a beautiful day today. You know, today was just a gorgeous day. He said, it's like this every day. But he said, this is beautiful. I said, I told you so. Well, after Jerusalem, it's very beautiful. Okay, another question. We'll go here, and then please, if you, if you have one, just to go to the, um, to the aisle so we can get you the microphones as well. But let's go right here. Did you have your hand up? Yeah, please. Hi, I'm April Savage. Um, I'm a bio major, third year. Um, my question to, I guess, both of you, but mainly Michael Douglas, um, Given your background and experience in interfaith work, uh, what advice would you give to me and my peers as college students of how to foster interfaith climate on campus? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think certainly through Hillel, 
um, which seems to have a, a wonderful uh, warmth. I mean, it's, it's 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 basically, I think, an issue of being of being candid uh, and open and not being uh, afraid. I mean, for all the years, you know, the reform movement really was it was 1983. The reform movement acknowledged that if your father was was uh, was Jewish, um, and so you know. As people always say, don't talk about politics or religion, and you'll always get along. But I think, uh, particularly now, and we were talking earlier about the, the, one of the issues of this BDS movement and everything else, and watching the town when we had a, 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 a group um, of uh, protesters at Brown University uh, when we spoke, and Natan goes out and talks to people to try to find out you know, what the issues are and very quickly you find out they don't know how to talk. They really don't. They, they, they know how to, to protest, but as far as what the issues are concerned, you know, Israel is an apartheid state. Well, how do you mean that? You're going to compare Israel to South, South Africa uh, before Nelson Mandela? I don't think so. So, you know, I, 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 would, I would just uh, encourage you know, a dialogue and not being able and being able to open up and expose yourself and, and have the support of Hillel behind you. Thank you. Go to this side. Hi. Uh, my name is Josh Swedelson. I'm a senior right now studying economics and accounting. Uh, my question is to both of you guys. Um, as influential members in both politics and the media, um, I was wondering if you guys could both comment on I guess, current trends in the media itself in terms of its portrayal of Israel, um, media sources that you think maybe are more biased, not specific things to call out, but I guess I want to hear your thoughts on trends in the media and how that's its own battlefield. I'm, I'm finding it so frustrating and so difficult to get any international news with our elections going on. <laughs> I mean, it just is non, non-stop. It's on a, on a repetitive role and note. One thing I've noticed just between our, our two countries is I, I feel some similarities. Uh, this is not a criticism. But this is just a, a reality between Likud party and how you put a coalition together um, and, and watching what happened after the last elections uh, and bringing it all together and the Republican Party, which is dealing with a Tea Party uh, aspect on one side and, and how it affects... Um, where your channels are, where all of us are trying, used to be, everyone's trying to get to that middle center, whether it was center-right, center-left. Both countries and parties seem to be being pulled away. And we have an election going on now where, ironically, we have you know, two far further sides of normal extreme left, extreme uh, right. Um, and I don't know how much the media um, is, uh, is talking about that. Um, I, I know because of, of the issue, which we did not get a chance to talk about, which was Iran um, and the, uh, the agreements and when President Netanyahu came over here to Congress, uh, I mean, that certainly caused a, a lot of friction in, in terms of our, our parties. So I don't know what, what would you say. Well, look, uh, uh, I think they would problem with the media, it's strange to say, but it's the same as the problem with these protesters in, in, uh, in Brown University. Because when you try to take them from the slogans to substance, they, they really don't want them to go to substance. They don't know the substance and they 
say, don't try to take me uh, deep. I am really not interested in it. The problem with the media that it is so superficial, so extremely superficial, and it's all about the picture. And it is so, uh, so easy to have a picture of uh, Palestinian suffering that because his uh, house was destroyed in Aza, and it's much more difficult, uh, or it needs a serious effort, a serious analysis, uh, why his house was destroyed in Gaza, or why there is fourth or fifth generation of Palestinians live in refugee camps. And uh, I have to say that uh, my attempts to, to, uh, to have a serious discussion with, uh, with the, uh, uh, journalists of newspapers, which are supposed to be very serious newspapers, they were, they were as a rule, disappointing. They really are not ready to go deep into the analysis of the phenomena. And, uh, and uh, it's dangerous. Those, they help to this uh, war of slogans uh, against Israel. So what we have to do is always to try to uh, take statement, any statement which is done, and try to analyze it in view of uh, the realities of the Middle East. Because if we go into the what's really happening in the Middle East with, uh, uh, with unique and unprecedented uh, wars of fundamentalists from one side and from the other side, and that the only very small island of decency and democracy and human rights and Western values, which is Israel, and and then you look at this, uh, you live this through the situation, you know the situation very well, and then look on your most prestigious newspapers, and there is only pictures, and one can think if he judges from these pictures, he can think that. The only place in the Middle East where, which, uh, where some awful things are happening, it is Israel. So it's unfortunately, I don't know how it happens, but, and by the way, uh, the public opinion in America, I find out, is not influenced somehow by this press. I, w- I would be concerned uh, uh, if I were editor of the newspaper and every day, you're publish every day. You're publishing uh, pictures about how awful Israel is, and then you make polls and poll after the poll of American public opinion, and it is very favorable to Israel, and uh, and Americans continue naively believing that Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East, while uh, the newspaper says something opposite. I would be very concerned. Probably these newspapers don't have real influence. <laughs> Another on this side. Hi, I'm Ariella. I'm a fourth year political science and international relations major. Um, this question is for both of you. Thank you so much for being here. Natan, I'm sorry for politically bombarding you again. I can't help it. Um, so as someone who has a deep connection with Israel and a love for my own Judaism, I find that, um, or my beliefs are that love doesn't come without complexity and criticism. And um, I find that whenever I do criticize Israel from its policies on asylum seekers to the occupation itself, I am, um, excuse me, I come across um, 
shutdowns and that my opinions aren't valid because I don't, I'm not from Israel and I'm an American. So as people, as leaders who really believe in, um, in building Jewish education at a young age and fostering this sense of connection to Israel, how do you balance um, the, the ability to love this, that country but also be able to um, criticize some of its actions and policies? Well, I, I had an opportunity to answer your question but, uh, today in the afternoon, but uh, I'll be glad to say it again for the bigger audience. If somebody tries to shut you, know, uh, shut you down, how is it? don't let anybody. Jews and Israelis never permit anybody to shut them down when they criticize Israel. It's, it's simply, it's against our Jewish nature. Uh, uh, so if there is... Jewish organization who believes uh, that uh, the best way to protect Israel is not to permit people to criticize Israel, it's not really a Jewish organization. You have to check whether it is really Jewish. Uh, now, uh, I think whatever are your political views, to the left or to the right, or uh, to more orthodox, less orthodox, whatever are your political views, you'll find out very strong voices in Israel which support your opinion. So uh, that's why every, every uh, young Jew who is coming on birthrights or any other prob- uh, program, uh, or on our programs of Massa, spending the half a year, one year, as, as a rule, he or she is becoming stronger in their political views because they find out that here are the people uh, with the authority who say exactly what I believe. And it doesn't matter what are these political views. You will always find those who support your point. But all those who spend some meaningful time in Israel, whether they are becoming more strongly pro-Likud or more strongly pro-Meretz or more strongly uh, for reform jury or more strongly for orthodox jury, they all discover that that's their family, that here they feel themselves very comfortable to express their views because, as I quote them, here we are loved not for our views. So those who are trying to prevent you from expressing your views because of concern for Israel, they are doing disservice uh, uh, to, to Israel also. And I really call everybody, and he learned from this point of view, is an excellent organization, really excellent organization, which gives place for debates, but the base of their position is deep love to Israel and deep concern for Israel. And then we can disagree with the UN, maybe not disagree, but uh, what is the best way to protect the interests of the state and of the Jews and of the Arabs or in the area? Thank you. I'm, I'm looking at the clock and realizing I have a 6.30 a.m. flight tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. Out of here. That's your problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> David, I just wanted to, I wanted to say before we wrap it up, um, uh, Natan, I've had the best week with you. I've really enjoyed uh, this week and talking. And I feel that in a week's time, um, I've had a, a, a college semester in education. And I'm so happy that you like Santa Barbara because I am going to recommend that you come back as a guest lecturer with your family. <laughs> And uh, stay here for a while. And I think it's all, all, all for you should, you should all know, um, February 11th, 
February 11th will be the 30th anniversary since Natan got out of prison. And um, may we all accomplish as much as you have in the past 30 years. Congratulations. Well, Michael, I have to say that uh, I got out of prison uh, only because Jews of the world were fighting for this day and night. I had nine years of vacation. I was sitting and waiting, and all of what I was doing, I was saying no to KGB. And by this, I did all my 613 commandments. Uh, so it was very <coughs> comfortable place to be a good Jew, because how, where else you can fulfill all 613 commandments? <laughs> uh, so while I was resting, the Jews of the world and American Jewry were working very, very hard. So, so all, and uh, you know, KGB was saying, what do you hope for? Who is supporting you? Look, it's a bunch of students and housewives. But it were Jewish students and Jewish housewives and Jewish actors and Jewish uh, doctors who really mobilized all the world. And all the world, and in the end, this struggle made, not only brought me freedom, but brought down Iron Curtain, released Soviet Jews, and made all the world a better place. So we should always remember what a great power is in our solidarity. And I, I, during this week, I could see again and again and again how good was our choice of the prize winner. Uh, how, how, yeah. Uh, because I never in my life had so many selfies with Hollywood celebrities. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, thank you. Thank, thank you for you. your journey and for your lessons. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. So there's, there's, a, there's a saying that um, I've been waiting to just apply tonight um, that, that goes something like, you're the average of all the people you hang out with. So for me to have the honor to, to hang out with uh, Natan Sharansky and Michael Douglas is a real privilege. Uh, I want to thank you both so much and invite Evan Goodman up to the stage to uh, oh. conclude the evening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, David and Natan and, and Michael. Um, I'll end personally continuing, Natan, on, on what you said. They were, they were housewives and they were students who were protesting to free you. I was one of those students. In, the, in San Francisco, I would go on Sundays on Green Street to the Soviet consulate in San Francisco, along with other youth groupers to, to protest for your freedom. And to be able to be here as a rabbi and as someone who helps to lead our, our student community, um, it's, it's more than a privilege. It's, it's a pleasure and to see what, what you have made of your life since then. And, and Michael, um, I, I've loved your movies. You weren't protesting. I, I was not protesting yes, you for you. Were. You were up there, basic instinct. I know you were. I may have, yeah. Um, and the, the university here may have uh, changed a little bit in the, the years since you. I, I think that there may still be some medicinal research going on here. Um, 
Uh, one of the things that has changed is that the Jewish student population when you were here was very small, and now we have more Jewish undergraduates than any other UC school. So that's something that not everyone might know. More, more than Berkeley? More, more than, more, many more than Berkeley, yes, yes. Um, and we also take this last year, 160 students on birthright trips to Israel, oh, which is the most in the entire western United States. Yeah, that's, that's um, so, yes, these are th some things that we're very proud of, and uh, we couldn't do it without the support of people like these, and without the, the influence of people like you. So, um, Santa Barbara Hillel, as most of you know, is a completely independent organization that relies on the community, parents, and alumni for support. Mm -hmm. We thank you for your support, and, uh, and encourage you to continue to do that. Um, I also want to close by, by mentioning when the question came up about the women of the wall, another point of intersection for my life. I was a rabbinic student in 1988-1989 in Jerusalem and was at the initial times of the women of the wall, so, so that happened to be a part of my life as well. And we, in partnership with the university, with the Taubman Symposia, are bringing Anat Hoffman, the leader of the women of the wall, um, I believe next month or the month after to uh, Santa Barbara to, to speak here. So these are all wonderful ways to continue this conversation that is ongoing for all all of us, thank you for being here tonight. And once again, many thanks to Michael Douglas and Natan Sharansky. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.